Let me pray and then Megan's going to read our passage. Thank you, Lord. Why don't you, this isn't just what we do before someone speaks. Why don't you just put your hand on your heart. Just say, Lord, would you speak to me today? I want to say to you, even as you've got your hand in your heart, that you didn't come to church. You didn't come to some people. You came to the living God this morning. Father God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you that you are present. And I bring each person to you. We say, Lord, have your way in our hearts. Speak to us, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Is, yeah. Ooh, oh no. um, I'm going to ask you guys to do something quick. I don't know if I'm allowed to, so if I'm not allowed to, please just have grace for me. Um, but I didn't grow up in a church, but I grew up in a school where you had to enter. If an adult or someone older than you entered the room or walked past, you had to stand. It's out of respect, out of reverence for um, them being above you. And I feel like that's something we should approach God's word with. So as I read this verse, out of respect for the Lord, would you all stand? Let's stand, eh? Thank you. Okay, so I will be reading from 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. Let's take our seats. If you are new here, um, or maybe if you weren't paying attention, uh, we are in a series of messages from the book of 1 Peter. We like to preach through a whole book of the Bible because then you've got to preach whatever comes up, and uh, God's word will edify us. And so we've entitled the series Hopeful Exiles, and we really want everyone to receive hope and guidance for the age that we live in. And I think this morning's message will definitely touch on some of those themes. So in the verse that Megan just read for us, there's a very important word that you can brush over, and it's the word therefore. And that's my first point this morning. It's an impressive point, eh? <laughs> Is the word therefore. Really important linking word, therefore, and whenever you see it, therefore, you need to know what it's there for. And so Peter, as he's writing, I sound like I'm in a pipe. Peter, as he's writing to believers in Jesus who are scattered all through modern-day Turkey, he, he instantly, as we get to verse 13 of chapter 1, he goes into a pattern of writing that is familiar to all the apostolic letters. You see, the apostles, who had been taught by Jesus, knew that when Jesus taught them, Jesus said to them that what's on the outside, what people see on the outside isn't what matters most. What matters most is inside. It's the state of your heart. And they knew this. And they had experienced it. So as they followed Jesus, as they had their lives utterly transformed by Jesus and being in Jesus' presence, their outward lives changed as well. And so because of their experience, when the apostle Peter, this eyewitness of Jesus, wanted to encourage some people to change some things in their lives, he starts in a very specific way. He first laid a foundation of the gospel. 
he first, in verses 1 to 12, has laid this foundation of the truth, reminding these believers of the good news that they've received and their salvation. And he does this before he gives them any instruction on how they're to live. And it's because the apostles, like Paul and Peter, knew that if you looked back at the goodness of God in God saving you, you'd be motivated and you'd be empowered to live out a life response. You see, right thinking leads to right, uh, sorry, right believing and right thinking leads to right living. And so in 1 Peter's letter, what he has done is he's already laid out for us what God has done before he gets to anything where he's telling you to do something. You can go back and look at those 12 uh, verses and there's really no instruction other than blessed be God, which isn't even an instruction, it's an exhortation. But now in his letter, having drawn our attention already to the wonders of the gospel past, present and future, which Nathan brought us to last week, now in verse 13, he's about to call us to do something. And so he says, therefore, in light of everything I've said, therefore, he's going to give us some things to do. And I want to say that this is not just important to understand the passage that we're in today, but it's important. I would even say it's vital for your life to understand the Christian life. You see, if you just hear the imperatives of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, if you just hear the imperatives or you hear them divorced from the, uh, the, the indicatives of what God has done for you, you'll be discouraged. You'll even be crushed. Many people who've been coming into town and have grown up and they've said the Lord's Prayer during school and now they're at varsity, they think they know what Christianity is about. They think they know what church is about. They think it's a list of rules. They think it's a list of do's and don'ts, but it's not. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, when I was a young boy, I was about eight years old when I gave my life to Jesus. I remember during holidays, I knew I believed in Jesus because during holidays I used to pray for it to be sunny because I wanted to go to the beach. And then my brother would pray, we shared a room. They would rain because he wanted to go to the movies. I don't know who God listened to more. But I knew I was saved from about eight years old. I had a faith in Jesus. But I also know that I had an unclear faith in Jesus because I knew that the Bible said certain things, that I should be a good Christian. I knew some of the imperatives. I knew that God's Word said some things about how we to live. But I remember feeling like I lacked the power to do them. Do you identify with that? But when I was 13 years old, we must send every young person on every camp they can ever go on, including One Hope's camp, and the youth camp to follow. Can I hear an amen? amen. When I was 13 years old, I went on a youth camp, and in an instant, my life was changed. In an instant, my life was changed. I was filled with the Holy Spirit as someone prayed for me. And in an instant, the love of God that's described in Romans 5, 5 was poured into my heart. And with that love of God washing over me came the desire and the power to change and to be like God wanted me to be. 
And so for years and years, I knew what I should be, but I had no power. And I didn't even have the desire. I just knew I should. But I knew that I couldn't. But when I was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, not only in my desires changed, but I was filled with power to change as well. Believer in Jesus, are you struggling in some way with some secret sin? What's needed is not for you to just try harder. What's needed is for you to be more in awe of God. You need to meet the majestic, wonderful Jesus afresh. You need to see him in, his, in all his glory. You need to encounter Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you. And when you encounter him, you'll want to live your life differently. You'll respond. And that's why the apostle writes his letter like this. He takes 12 verses to get to saying anything about what he wants you to do. Mark Deva calls sin a worship disorder. Sin always is present when we have a love for something or someone greater than our love for Jesus Christ. And that's why there's 12 verses here telling us what Jesus has done for us before there's anything about what you should do. I pray that that would really sink into your heart. I didn't want to move on until we got that because this is critical to the Christian life. If you feel discouraged as a Christian, I think you'll find you need a greater view of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you before you try and do anything else. Amen. Secondly, from this passage, this whole message is one, one verse, and I could have preached two messages from this passage, but we will try and keep it to the normal time frames. Prepare your minds for action is what Peter says. The Jesus followers that Peter is writing to and ourselves are being told to do something here. Eventually, he gets to telling us to do something. And he tells us that we need to be alert. He's saying that we need to keep ourselves in a state of mental readiness, preparedness, like on your toes, ready for action. We need to be intentional, he says, about how we think. Because so much of our lives flow from the state that our mind is in. I just found it so reassuring that our age, which is so fixated with mental health and how we think, well, the Bible's been telling us that it's important how we think forever. This isn't a new thing. We're not catching up with the culture. It's like culture, we got there long ago. Your Bible is filled with things about how you should think, and today is one of those. So he says, prepare your minds for action, which in Greek... So I just, I'm feeling a bit chilly. <laughs> in Greek, the phrase, prepare your mind for action, is actually, gird up the loins of your heart. When last did you say that to someone? <laughs> gird up the loins of your heart. So because that's not a common phrase, I decided to wear my gown, because I don't have a robe. But in those days, people had robes. And if you were gonna run with a heavy robe, you kind of tucked it in. Like this. I've seen ladies do something like this. When Francia, when she rides her bike, she kind of does this. It's like getting yourself ready to go. And what Peter is saying is he's saying, you need to be ready for action. Because you can't do kung fu if you need to, if you've got a long robe on. And so the phrase that he's using is saying, get yourself ready. 
It's amazing, actually, because similar language is used to speak to the Hebrews at the first Passover that the angel was going to pass over and they needed to have their, 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 their coats on, their belts tied and their sandals on and ready to go. It's the same type of idea. There are a couple of places where Jesus also talks about being ready, being prepared. The modern equivalent might be something like be ready, be on your toes or skrikvaka. And so believers in Jesus need to be like this in how we think. We're to be alert, we're to be primed, we're to be ready to respond. We are not to be reactionary, apathetic, indifferent, slothful, or lazy about how we think, about our minds or our thoughts. And I thought about that, and I thought about feelings and thoughts, and the difference between feelings and thoughts. Feelings, I want to propose to you this morning, are involuntary. A feeling just, you just, it washes over you. It washes over your consciousness. You don't really have much agency with regard to your feeling. You're not in control of your feeling, it just comes to you, but you are in control of your thoughts, which is what Peter is talking about. So it might work out like this. You may wake up one morning and you're feeling anxious or down. Have you ever had that sort of experience? Did you, just before waking up, decide, I'm going to wake up anxious? Or did you just start feeling that? You experienced that you were feeling anxious. What is most important with your feelings is what you do next. When you have a feeling, what you do next is what matters most. And what Peter is saying is that we need to be prepared. We need to be those who are in control of what happens next. And so believer in Jesus, if you don't yet believe in Jesus, I'm so glad you're at church today. I just want to talk to believers because if you're not a believer in Jesus, I don't have much help for you in this moment, but I'll speak to you later. But believer in Jesus I want to say to you, you are able to control your thoughts. Can I hear an amen? amen? Sounds like three people in the front believe that. <laughs> Believer in Jesus, you are able to control your thoughts. Amen. There's a fourth person. <laughs> this could take a long time. <laughs> Believer in Jesus, you are able to control your thoughts. Amen. Okay, we can carry on. The Bible will never tell you to do something that is impossible. Why I waited for you to all agree is that Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Jesus will never tell you to do something that's impossible. Paul said, do not be anxious about some things. No, it doesn't say that. It says, do not be anxious about Anything. The real kicker in that passage is the anything. If it says don't be anxious or try not to be anxious, cool, got that. But if it says do not be anxious about anything, the Bible will not give you an instruction that's impossible. Peter goes on to, I mean, Paul goes on to say, but rather in Philippians 4, think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Are you hearing the theme? You are able 
to be in control of your thoughts. Our verse today tells us the same thing in another way. It says, be prepared in your mind. Be ready for action, which often for me would mean being active in deciding what you think about. Directing your thoughts is the role of the believer. Sisters and brothers, fellow believers in Jesus, one of the primary battlefields, one of the areas that the enemy is most attacking is the realm of our mind. Just tell the person next to you in case they didn't know it. Just tell them. You can talk in church when I, when I say so. Tell them. The primary battlefield is often in the mind. Tell them. Tell them so they believe it. Look them in the eye. If you don't know them, just introduce yourself. <laughs> Friends, what this passage is saying is we need to be ready to stand against the schemes, against the insinuations, the feelings, and the thoughts that the enemy deposits in your mind. We're not to be on the back foot, we're to be on the front foot. Now you might say, that's very nice, Gareth. I'm so glad you're such a confident person. Well, actually, I, like you, have had to fight fear of failure. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. Has anyone had to really fight fear of failure? Feelings of doubt? I see that hand. Or stinging comparison? Where you compare yourself to others and you don't come out well. For years, I struggled to lead a church that many years wasn't Flowing, uh, growing or flourishing. It was hard. God led me to lead in a, a church in a context, in a poor context, and God asked me to build a multi-million rand building in that context. In fact, God said to me, I'm going to feel like Noah, that people would laugh. And they did. So we built a multi-million rand building with no bond ever, just on a cash basis. In fact, God said, if you build the church, I'll build the building, which sounded really nice when God told me, but it sounded cheesy when I told other people. And it took 10 years, just short of 10 years, to see that building built, and praise God, in 2018, we moved into it. And I often struggled during those 10 years. So not just a short struggle, 10 years of doubt, inadequacy, despondency. And when those feelings came, when you wake up and you feel, oh my goodness, we will never do this. You didn't invite that feeling, but what matters is what, what you do next. And in those years, I needed to be prepared. I needed to be ready for action. I needed to be ready to resist. I needed to not just give in to those feelings or suggestions, but I needed to respond on the battlefield of the mind. And so what I would generally do is I would acknowledge what I was feeling. So I don't believe in just the power of positive speech. I believe in acknowledge what I'm feeling. And I would actually acknowledge those feelings and the resultant thoughts. And I would confess them to God because often they would actually be sinful in the sense that I'm actually not believing something that God has said. So I would confess those to God and I would lament to God about the reality of how I felt. And I would share with Nadine, my wife, and I would share with my small discipleship group, and I would share with my elders, and I would invite prayer. 
And then I would pray and I would read scripture so that I could combat lies with truth. And I would remind myself of things God had said generally in scripture and specifically through prophecy. I would remind myself of those things and I would choose to believe again. And then I would pray for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to fill me up and to overwhelm my weakness. I want to say to you, I know what it's like to have to fight on the battlefield of the mind. And if you're sitting here today, I don't want you to hear anything which sounds like that's easy. What you don't understand, I want to say I've been there too. I want to say I don't know of a Christian that won't have to fight on the battlefield of the mind. But our scripture today is enabling and equipping and empowering to do that. And I want to encourage you to think about today whether you are presently unprepared or prepared for the battle of the mind. Just think about yourself at the moment. Do you feel like I'm in a state of preparedness, readiness, or actually I've not been ready? And just now we want to create a moment where we can pray for you because we don't want to leave you in the same place, but we want to draw alongside of you. Some of you are being kicked around like a soccer ball, mentally and emotionally. You're feeling powerless in the fight. You even believe maybe that it isn't a fight, it's just who you are. What an utter lie from hell. It is not who you are. Your loving, mighty God wants better for you. And He wants to wrap His arms around you today. And maybe today is a vital day in the story of your life. Amen? Thirdly, from this passage, I'm not going to say verse 13 each time because it's verse 13, is be sober-minded. Peter goes on to say that in addition to being ready and prepared for action, he then, he then thinks, comes around and he thinks, let me say this another way. He says, don't be drunk in your mind. He, he's saying sober-minded, it's the opposite of drunken. And at this time in Stellenbosch, at this time of year, it is an all-too-apt mental picture for us, isn't it? Because there's any number of opportunities to see people in this state. Well, someone who is drunken is what should be in your mind, and, and he's saying, do not be like that person in your mind. A drunken person is present, but they're not truly alert, are they? Their reflexes are dulled. Their vision is blurred. Their perspective and their perception lacks clarity. They are not entirely in control of their actions or their thoughts. And because of that, they are unguarded. They are prone to be startled or taken advantage of. <coughs> we as Christ followers are urged to be the exact opposite of that. We are to be sober-minded. We're to be alert, we're to be sharp, we're to be in control, we're to be on our guard as believers in Jesus because life is not like a battle, it is a battle. And too many bumble through life like a feather blown in the breeze, like a powerless passenger, unsure of what to expect or unconvinced that they've got any agency to affect things. Hence, we're in a constant state of being startled in our reaction or in a stupor and not knowing what to do rather than being prepared. Have you ever said these things? I'm sure you wouldn't have said them. Maybe the person next to you, but don't look at them just now. I, I don't know how that happened. 
I, I didn't realize. I, I wasn't thinking straight. You've never said that, hey. Don't be drunk in your thinking. Peter is urging us to live another way. He's urging us to have clear thinking. He's, he's urging us to have appropriate expectations for the life that we're living and therefore being ready for anything. But if we fail to take heed of this instruction to be ready and to be sober, we could have terrible impact in our life. There was a lady, a young woman who shared life with our family, and she wasn't prepared in her thinking. In particular, she hadn't really settled her identity and her belonging in Jesus Christ. And because of that, because she didn't find her identity and her belonging and her purpose in a life-giving relationship with Jesus, because of that she wasn't ready for what was coming. And so she had a deficit in her life is that she had a longing for approval because her approval wasn't being met in Jesus. And because of that, some bozo walked into her life one day and used her unmet need for approval to take advantage of her. And so she gave her body away to him with deep regret instantly after. She didn't want that relationship. She didn't want that sexual encounter. She wanted approval. But her approval was always found in Jesus, not in some bozo. Friends, why do I tell you that story? Because what I'm preaching about today is no playing matter. Being sober-minded and preparing your mind for action could literally save your life. So I'm so glad you've asked, how can we prepare our minds for action? Because that's the, the question I want to answer. And I want to give you six ways that you can practically prepare your mind for action. Because you might be saying, yes, okay, I want to do it. I see the importance of this, but how? So let's look at the how. Six things. Firstly, you're going to get so tired of me telling you to read your Bible, you're eventually going to ask me to leave. The first way you can prepare your mind for action is to devote, say devote, devote yourself to Scripture and to prayer. As you devote yourself to reading Scripture, you will be depositing the truth of God in your life continuously. And as you devote yourself to prayer, you will be getting the perspective that you need. Prayer is not for God. Prayer is for you and me. When you pray, you are declaring, I don't have this. That's why you're praying. If you're not praying, you're saying, I've got this. When you're praying, you're saying, God, I need you. Even if you don't use the words, by simply praying, you are saying, I need you. And so how to be prepared is to devote yourself to reading the Bible, not because you have to, but because you get to. And because when you read your Bible, it is preparing you. This is why I read the Bible. There's no verse that says, thou shalt read the Bible in the morning. But I read the Bible in the morning because reading it later might be, stop, I needed that earlier. So I read the Bible in the morning. I pray in the morning. And then I happen to my day rather than my day happening to me because I'm prepared. So firstly, devote yourself to Scripture and prayer. Secondly, 
be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 5.18. I find it fascinating that Jesus, when he gathered the disciples together just before he ascended, he didn't say to them, go, and then I'll give you the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. No, he said, wait until you receive power, and then you'll go and be my witnesses. That's Acts 1.8. There's an important sequence there. I want to encourage you. God has given you, Jesus has given you the power of the Holy Spirit that you don't need to do anything in your own power, but you ask for His enabling power. I want to encourage you to regularly find yourself asking, Lord, fill me again. I need your enabling power. He is your constant comparison. He is the member of the Trinity that makes true uh, Hebrews 13.5. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's the power and the enabling presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So how can you be prepared have the Holy Spirit with you always? He is with you always. He's omnipresent. But be aware of His presence like we sung earlier today. Thirdly, devote yourself to deep intentional relationships in the church. If you're here for the first time today, I want to say you're so welcome, and we want to say that we're just one of many great churches in our town. We really can. In fact, I was thinking in the prayer meeting, I don't know if it was God or, or, or me thinking about fasting coming up, but thinking we should buy donuts for the guys meeting next door and just show up one day with hundreds of donuts and say, we love you guys. I'll leave that to the finance team. But, but how did I get there? Church, church. We're just one of many great churches in this town. Hallelujah. That means praise God. But I want to say commit yourself to church. If you're presently church hopping, hop twice, then stick. Just stick in a Bible-believing church where Jesus is exalted and glorified. Why? Because you need those relationships, and those relationships, those people need you. And so in this church that looks like life groups, they've started all over the place. And this week you're going to one and they're not going to give you any food. It's the only meeting in this church without food. Get yourself into a life group. And don't be one of those people that you're on the list but you're not in the room. So commit yourself to a life group. Be in a discipleship group. Commit yourself deeply. And obviously come to camp. Devote yourself to deep intentional relationships. God never intended us to walk alone. And part of being prepared and ready for action is having people around you, more eyes, more ears, people who love you enough to say, hey, Brew, you need to sort that out. Or, or I can see you just going a bit wonky in your thinking there. Or you're letting the devil speak nonsense over you. You need people who can do that, and you need to do that for other people. Fourthly, know who you are and know whose you are. I told you that story about that young lady in our life who had lost sight of whose she was. If she was leaning more into that, she would have never said yes to that bozo. Find your identity. Find your belonging. Find your purpose in a life-giving relationship with Jesus. And if you don't yet know Jesus and you're in church this morning, I'm so glad you're here. We want to introduce you to Jesus. You, you might have thought you came to church, but you actually came to Jesus. We, we're not special, but He is special. And, and if you want to find out what life's really about, what you were made for, 
I can tell you now, you were made for a relationship with Jesus. I was walking the streets of uh, the Stellenbosch this week, just wanting to pray over this university and all these people, these lives that are flooding to this town, looking for a career, looking for education, looking for experiences. But what they really need is Jesus. And maybe you need Jesus this morning if you've never given your life to Jesus. I would love, just push through anyone else who's around me. I'll pray for you later. They, they can wait. You're more important this morning. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I don't know why you would be waiting one more minute. Give your life to Jesus. Amen? And then you can start a life-giving relationship with Jesus because clear thinking starts with a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Fifthly, we're nearly done. There are only six. To be prepared, you need to locate yourself accurately. It, you, you need to understand the time that you're living in as an exile. And this is the big theme of this book, is Peter is saying, if you're going to be prepared, if you're going to be ready for action, you need to understand the age that you're living in. You see, if you understand the age that you're living in, you can have realistic expectations, and then you'll know how to respond. And so just a few throwaway comments about the age you're living in. In this age that you're living in, you have an enemy. And the Bible, this book actually, we're going to get to it later, says he is prowling around looking to gobble you up. Secondly, you live in a fallen world tainted by sin. Bad stuff happens. Everything in this life is tainted by sin. Thirdly, you have a body that's been impacted by the fall, and so it is prone to sickness, suffering, and death. That happens in our own bodies, and we see that around us. Fourthly, sometimes you'll be under, you can register to vote, but you'll be under ungodly leaders, and you'll be under ungodly laws like many people were for, hundreds, uh, for 40 odd years in South Africa. You may face injustice, you may face opposition, you may encounter hardships because of your faith, or you may encounter hardships because there's a lack, there's not enough money. You will face death, you will see loved ones die. In this age, you will need to stick together as believers, and you'll need to know how to relate to the foreign culture that you're in. Brothers and sisters, don't be so shocked when our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. It's going, the fire's going to get hotter. Your faith is not popular. Just think about sexuality and ethics and gender to see what I'm talking about. And so we need to learn how to not combat our culture. We need to learn how to not compromise with our culture. We need to learn how to not retreat from our culture but we need to learn how to engage our culture with the love and the power of Jesus. Amen. And lastly, in this age, there's going to be times when you just feel like you don't fit in, where you almost feel like you're homesick, like you don't fit in here, you're misunderstood and you're displaced. You're like a misfit. Peter is saying, if you understand that you're in exile, if you locate yourself accurately, it'll prepare your mind for action. It'll help you work through so many things that happen in life. And lastly, set your hope fully on the grace of God 
that is to come. Verse 13. The final application on how do you prepare yourself for action is actually the final verse, uh, part of this, this verse. Let me read it to you again. Peter says, essentially he's saying, prepare your mind for action, and then, then he tells you how. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's urging us here is that he's saying to think right is to set your hope fully on the grace of God that is to come. And I think when I first looked at that, the thing that jumped out at me was that we're not to hedge our bets. We're not to trust in ourselves, our careers, our monies, our possessions, plus I'm also trusting in Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing for the Christian life. Rather, we are to fix our hope exclusively on the grace of God that is to come in Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us? I believe Peter is urging us to put all of our eggs into the one basket, the Jesus basket. Put all your eggs into the one basket. Live in such a way that you are so full of hope in Jesus that it shows to other people that we truly believe that Jesus is coming back. It's not just this idea, it really is what I believe. And that when he comes, he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth, and in that moment there will be no more sickness, sin, suffering, Satan, or death. In this life there will be, but in that life there will not be. And my hope is fixed fully at the moment that Jesus is coming back. And he will stand up, the Bible tells us, and declare, Behold, I make all things new. And so we need to live this life through all the complexity and the struggle that you experience in this life with a hope fully on the life that is to come. Because this life is not the end of the story. And so what is to come for us is so magnificent and so real and so glorious that Peter says that our present sufferings will be overwhelmed by it. Paul says the same thing. So I want to ask you, are you fully trusting in Jesus? Have you set your hope totally in Jesus Christ? The idea of eternity is not some religious drug that will make us feel better in the present. The the Bible is filled with messages about eternity being so real that you just set your hope fully on it. John Hosea says this, typically, if we're too vague about the subject of heaven, simply thinking of it as up there, out there, somewhere, if we have a clearer appreciation of the tangible nature of our bodies and where we are to live for eternity as well, as to what we might be doing, it will help us to become more excited about our future. I'll read to you another quote. Randy Alcorn, he says this, Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He need only convince us that it is a place that is boring, unearthly existence. If we believe that lie, we will be robbed of our joy and appreciation and we'll set our minds on this life and not the next. Can you see what I believe the Apostle Peter is talking about? He's saying if you're going to prepare your mind for action, 
you need to set your hope fully on the reality of eternity, which will make you live different in the present.